Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Rob. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, highlights from the 2023 American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, annual meeting, partnering with patients, the cornerstone of cancer care and research. This is part two of this two-part series. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, Novartis Oncology, and Marathi Therapeutics, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support. Now, we have many of you on the call today. There's over 200 participants on this program today. You come from all over the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. We also have international participants from Canada, Ireland, Lithuania, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's also a global call as well. And again, we appreciate your spending this next hour with us to learn about the topics that will be addressed today by our expert speakers. I'm going to begin with our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. And Dr. Dr. Chris is the William and Joy Rain Chair in Thoracic Oncology, Attending Physician, Thoracic Oncology Service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Mall Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris will begin by talking about the of cancer and cancer care from comfort to care, to cure. And he will also address updates on the treatment of lung cancer presented at ASCO. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, again, welcome to uh, all, everyone who's joined the call today. I'm uh, mainly going to talk about lung cancer and not cancer in general. And I think we're an example of uh, the progress that's been made in uh, fighting this illness. Uh, and what I'd like to do is to talk a little bit about the current state of the art and then uh, review uh, some of the developments that were presented at the American Society of Clinical Oncology annual meeting uh, in early June of this year uh, and, and what we learned there and what we can look forward to uh, in the years to come. This has really been an extraordinary uh, two decades uh, in the fight against uh, lung cancers. Um, a couple of things happened during this time that I think are responsible uh, for the dramatic change in uh, how well people are doing uh, and, and how much longer people are living. Uh, I think the first thing that happened is a greater uh, reliance on testing of the uh, tumor tissue. Uh, we saw early on that the type of lung cancer you had that from the pathology testing determined uh, better success with certain treatments. And when we started testing for the presence of uh, genetic changes in the cancer cells, not in you, but in the cancer cells, we were able then to match patients whose cancers had those genetic changes with um, drugs that specifically attack cancers with those changes. I think the uh, first and most dramatic benefit was with the EGFR receptor uh, and the drugs that targeted that. The drug in use right now is a drug called uh, osimertinib or Tegriso. 
this has dramatically changed the treatment of that cancer, uh, but only in patients whose tumors bear that EGFR mutation, and we can find that out now reliably by testing. A couple other things about testing is while we we can uh, comprehensively test now and we find which uh, potential targets are present in a person's cancer, but we also find uh, when targets are not present. I know many people, when they have a test and they don't find a target, they're very disappointed. But what's happened in the recent years is we've been able to see that the absence of these targets means an improved response to immune therapies, immunotherapies. Uh, those of you that watch television see the ads for the various immune therapies, and in the fine print and in that person talking so fast you can barely understand them, they say this immune treatment is particularly helpful for patients that do not have uh, mutations in the EGFR or ELK gene. So knowing that those uh, mutations are not present is a very important uh, piece of information. Uh, so uh, that testing has, has really changed things, both in, I'll call it positive selection, if you have the target, you get the targeted treatment, and negative selection, if you have the target, you don't get a targeted treatment, instead you get an immune therapy. I, I should mention that uh, as we um, have found these targets, we found more uh, therapies that attack those targets. And in the last year or so, we've had uh, a new target, KRAS G12C, KRAS G12C, and at least two drugs that have already been approved in the United States, the Sotorasib and the Adagrasib, that these drugs specifically target those cancers that have that KRAS G12C mutation. So as we develop, do more testing, we find more targets, and scientists look for drugs that specifically help people whose cancers have those targets. The other huge development that's happened in the last two decades is the development of immunotherapy. Now, unlike chemotherapies or the targeted therapies where the drug attacks the cancer cell directly, the immunotherapies work in a different way. What they do is they, uh, I like to say, educate the body to uh, educate the immune cells in the body to fight the cancer. Uh, and the drugs that target the PDL1 or the drugs that target CTLA-4, ipilimumab, and uh, CTLA-4, nivolumab, durvalumab, pembrolizumab, uh, atezolizumab that target the PDL1. What these drugs do is they educate your own immune cells to fight the cancer. So there, it's you know a little different situation. It's not you know get enough drug there to kill the cancer. It's to get enough drug to the immune cell to educate the immune cell, and it's the immune cell that fights the cancer. So the bottom line for all these advances that happened in the last uh, two decades is that the mortality of lung cancer has fallen, and that the specialists in the field that analyze this data have made it clear that the mortality has fallen particularly because of the uh, success of these new therapies. So more therapies, longer lives, better lives. In general, these therapies that are more uh, targeted to a person's specific cancer have fewer adverse effects. Um, 
more and more they target the cancer cell and miss normal cells, uh, and it's really led to a big change. Uh, a quick word about the, the uh, current standards of care for lung cancer. And uh, those of you that are fighting cancer know that we have this, I'll call it shorthand of what they call staging. Staging says where the cancer is in your body. And treatments to a, a great extent are decided upon where we discover the cancer in the body. And for lung cancers, those cancers that were confined to the lung or the lymph glands just nearby in the lung were generally treated with uh, surgery. Those cancers that are more uh, advanced within the lung and lymph glands, uh, involving uh, more lymph glands, uh, lymph glands in the center of the chest, so-called mediastinal lymph nodes, those cancers are generally treated with uh, chemotherapy and surgery or radiation. And for those cancers that have spread to other organs in the body, uh, they're generally treated with uh, chemotherapy alone, radiation and surgery in special situations. So that, that's sort of the lineup. Uh, cancer in the lung, surgery, cancer in the lung and uh, adjacent lymph nodes, surgery or radiation and chemotherapy, and for cancer that's spread is chemotherapy. So what happened at ASCO this year? Well, I think uh, probably what many would say was the biggest news was that people have kind of melded surgery with targeted therapy. And the particular case was with EGFR and with patients whose tumors had the EGFR mutation following a successful surgery, a surgery where all the cancer was removed, and following chemotherapy, those people that got a targeted therapy, in this case the drug osimertinib, had a longer time cancer-free, uh, a longer and bigger chance for cure, and also a longer survival, dramatically so. So for the first time, we have now added in drugs that target a characteristic in the cancer to successful surgery and chemotherapy. And what we saw at ASCO uh, was that for the drug osimertinib, if the patient's tumor had an EGFR mutation, those people lived longer cancer-free and had a greater chance for cure, and those people uh, lived longer in general. So those were very important developments. And now uh, cancer, uh, tu cancerous tumors are tested, and osimertinib is uh, given uh, if that EGFR mutation is found after surgery. The other development that came out this year uh, was in the area that we call neoadjuvant therapy. And we've learned that uh, you can give a drug, a cancer treatment, not after surgery, but before surgery. And this year, there were two very large clinical trials presented at the ASCO meeting where patients that had uh, cancer that could be removed by a surgeon, people that were headed toward surgery, before they went to surgery, they got either chemotherapy or the combination of chemotherapy and uh, an immune therapy. Uh, the two, uh, the, one of the drugs talked about was pembrolizumab, but it's also been shown for devalumab and nivolumab previously. What they found was that for those patients that received 
the immune therapy and the chemotherapy, they again had a longer time free of return of the cancer, a longer time cancer-free after surgery, uh, which was the goal of this trial and also better killing of the cancer. The other twist on here is that this benefit of the immune treatment and the um, chemotherapy was found really only in those patients that didn't have the EGFR mutations or the ALK gene rearrangements. So it pointed to the importance of testing tumors before surgery to see if indeed they had these uh, uh, targets where uh, a drug would be helpful, uh, a matched genetic drug to that target. Those people did not have great benefit from the immune treatment and chemo. Conversely, those um, that uh, did not have the uh, uh, target, those were the ones that had the greatest benefit. So the two things kind of came together, one giving systemic therapy with surgery, uh, and in this case, uh, what I would call negative selection or negative targeting. So even though if you, your tumor doesn't have that gene for which there's a certain uh, therapy, it may mean that there's another therapy that may be even uh, more effective for you. And that was the story with neoadjuvant therapy. I think more and more now, before surgery, people are going to be treated with lung cancer. And this is already the case in many other cancers. And I think breast cancer is, is the one where there's the most uh, experience for this. The other thing that happened at the ESCO meeting uh, this year was a discussion about, I'll call it the next generation of uh, chemotherapy drugs. And, and these drugs are something called antibody drug conjugates, a ADCs. And what happens here is you have an antibody that finds a characteristic on the cancer cell, but attached to that antibody is a chemotherapy. So what happens is the drug is administered, it finds its way to the cancer cell, and really only when it gets to the cancer cell does the chemotherapy break off, as it were, and enter the cancer cell. And there were three drugs talked about this year uh, in, in lung cancer, uh, drugs that target uh, different um, uh, proteins on the cancer cell, trope 2, HER2, and HER3. There's another one called CCAM1. And there are these antibody drug conjugates that find those cells that bear those uh, proteins on their surface and attack them. Uh, the drugs are generally effective. They're generally better tolerated than traditional chemotherapy. Uh, again, remember, they bring the drug right to the cancer cell. So what it's done is to give us another way of uh, fighting lung cancer. And there was a lot of data presented about these drugs marching forward. In lung cancer, um, the HER2 drug is already approved, a drug called uh, Trastuzumab Derex TCAN uh, for people that, whose tumors have the HER2 mutation, and the uh, other ones are marching toward approval. One last thing about testing. Uh, in the past, we've always had to do the testing on tumor tissue. And uh, it, it's added another level of complexity uh, for, for practitioners and, and, and for patients. So what's happened now is that there are blood tests available, particularly for patients that have the more advanced stages of cancers that can detect those same uh, DNA changes in the tumor cells, but right out of your blood. So that is another uh, part of the uh, puzzle here that has worked very successfully to help us target therapy. Now, the last thing I want to touch on today and do so briefly 
is that the dramatic developments that is, have happened, and particularly adding in these targeted therapies like the anti-EGFR drugs or the immune therapies like the anti-PD-1 or, or CTLA-4 drugs with the uh, therapies that can cure radiation or surgery, but also the observation is that some patients, even with metastatic cancer, cancer that had already spread to the brain, the spread to the liver, the bone, those patients can also be cured with immune therapy. And that's opened up a fantastic uh, opportunity for us. And, and we, we want nothing more than to, uh, to cure more patients. And what's that done is it, it's forced a rethinking of the treatment of lung cancer. And um, I've been one to very much um, foster the concept that we need to make cure a goal of care uh, for each person with lung cancer, and also to think about using it as a goal for uh, clinical trials. Um, there's some steps along the way that I hope are gonna happen within the next few years. The first is, as, as crazy as it sounds, we really don't have a good definition for cure. So I think one thing the scientific community needs to do is to come together, find a definition for cure. The other thing that we need, and uh, to the people on the phone today, is we need your input in making that uh, a definition what cure is. Secondly, we need you to tell doctors that cure is the goal. Um, yes, we unfortunately can't deliver a curative treatment in every patient, but what I've been encouraging doctors to do is to ask them with each and every patient, is there a possibility for cure? And what would be the steps that we could undertake to get that patient cured? Um, again, docs aren't used to making this kind of uh, thinking process right now. And they really need to hear from you that this is important uh, and that, you know, is there that possibility? And sadly, there often isn't that possibility, but if there is, we need a path to um, prove it. This is going to be a huge effort. It's going to go on over many years. We need uh, the help of scientists. We need the help of biostatisticians. We need the help of the people sponsoring research, the pharmaceutical and biotech companies, and the regulatory agents to make your part of care. But I think that the time is, is here where we can cure more patients, particularly when we add uh, immune therapies to surgery and radiation, and we can cure more patients. So a lot of good news in the fight against lung cancer, people living better, people are living longer, more developments uh, were presented at ASCO this year, and there's going to be a real rush to get these drugs into uh, practice uh, and to get them to more patients, A, to help them live longer cancer-free, but also to uh, have, give to more patients what we really want to deliver, and that is the chance to cure their cancer. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was an outstanding presentation for this series, and I think you've set the stage for the entire series, so I want to thank you. Um, thank you both for the information you provided and for the inspiration you've given all of the participants today, and, and you've given everyone a mandate to ask your physician about the possibility of cure. That's important to do, so thank you. Thanks so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Sarah Rutherford, and Dr. Rutherford is John P. Leonard, MD, Wurtzman Family Research Scholar in Lymphoma, Assistant Professor of Medicine, Law Cornell Medical College, Cornell University.
and Dr. Rutherford will be addressing an update on the treatment of lymphoma presented at ASCO and the role of clinical trials, how research increases treatment options. And it is really now my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Rutherford. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner, for inviting me today. And I really enjoyed that talk from Dr. Chris. I, and I agree with you, um, Dr. Messner, that that really set the stage for the rest of us. And um, interestingly and not surprisingly, I do have uh, some similar type information to present in a very different disease, uh, group of diseases. I'm excited to present these important updates to you on lymphoma from the American Society of Clinical Oncology 2023 meeting. Uh, the most impactful presentation in lymphoma this year was on Hodgkin lymphoma. And um, I will first start by telling you a story of the evolution of treatment of lymphoma, of Hodgkin lymphoma over the past decade that will actually show you how clinical research increases treatment options. And then I will conclude with some more exciting breakthroughs in other types of lymphomas and non-Hodgkin lymphomas that were presented at ASCO. Hodgkin lymphoma is a disease that is highly curable, but treatment has traditionally caused a lot of side effects and often in young people that have to live with those side effects for many years. For me, my interest in the treatment of this disease, Hodgkin lymphoma, started about 20 years ago when my father was diagnosed with Hodgkin lymphoma when I was a medical student. He received the standard treatment that had been the standard and has remained the standard until relatively recently called ABVD. And I will be referring to some different letters as we go through. I'm going to try to be as clear as possible. This treatment is a combination of four chemotherapy drugs that are given every other week for 12 total treatments, which is a six-month course and a quite intense course. One of the drugs, the B in ABVD, is called bleomycin, and it's known to cause lung toxicity, and that can be quite serious. Um, in particular, my dad's oncologist actually decided to remove this drug um, part of the way through his treatment when he was in his late 50s as he had developed a cough and um, his doctor was concerned about that causing more uh, acute issues. Subsequently, my dad was cured of this disease and continues to be a healthy man in his 70s and has able, been able to see his grandchildren grow up. Since that time that he was treated, there has been an evolution in the treatment of Hodgkin lymphoma and I'm happy to be able to be a part of this um, treatment and, and um, research in this disease. In 2016, there was a clinical trial called RAFL that was published. And in this study, patients who were to consider to be in what is called a complete response, so we don't see any evidence of the lymphoma on their imaging tests after four of the 12 treatments, so a third of the way through, were randomized to either continuing the full treatment course versus stopping that drug that I mentioned earlier called bleomycin, which can cause lung toxicity. And it was found that results were equivalent. So the, around that time in 2016, it became the standard of care to give just a third of the, of the treatments with bleomycin and to stop it after that in people who had an excellent response. During this time, two more novel type treatments that uh, are similar to ones that were mentioned by Dr. Chris had be, um, begun to be um, studied in Hodgkin lymphoma. One is called an antibody drug conjugate, which he talked about, ADC. That's the type of treatment that binds to 
a protein, and in this case on the surface of the lymphoma cells called CD30, and injects a toxin that directly kills the cells. And that drug is called brintuximab bedotin or BV. The second drug uh, ca uh, category are the immunotherapies, in particular the checkpoint inhibitors, the nivolumab and pembrolizumab that Dr. Chris spoke about. And so we've known that these drugs worked well in people with lymphoma who'd had prior treatments. Um, but actually, in, in 2018, there was a study called Echelon 1 that was published that, that compared the traditional ABVD that I've talked about, which my dad had received years ago, with uh, three of those drugs, AVD, minus the bleomycin, the lung um, toxicity-inducing one, with this newer drug called brintuximab bedotin. And again, I know I'm saying a lot of letters, and I'm trying to be as clear as possible, but I want you to kind of focus on the story of how I'm describing the evolution of this treatment based on the clinical trials that were conducted. And it was found that this newer treatment strategy actually improved the overall survival of patients, which is really our gold standard over the ABVD. So uh, in the last four years or so, this combination with the newer treatment, brintuximab bedotin, actually had become the standard of care for this disease, Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, notably, this drug is associated with numbness and tingling of the fingers and toes and has some other side effects, and it can be difficult for people to tolerate and get the full course. So again, these are often young people, but sometimes older people as well who are going through a six-month course of treatment and, um, and hopefully and, and likely are going to live many years after the treatment. And so um, we also are, are focused on trying to make sure we're enabling the patients to have the best tolerability as possible with um, the treatment of this disease, Hodgkin lymphoma. At ASCO, a landmark study called S1826, it was sponsored by the National Clinical Trials Network, um, was reported in the plenary session. And this study investigated um, Hodgkin lymphoma um, in both children and adults who had what's considered advanced stage disease. And it compared this newer treatment, the brintuximab bedotin, with ADD chemotherapy that I told you had become the standard of care in recent years with the immunotherapy nivolumab that Dr. Chris talked about and with the same three chemotherapy drugs. Um, and the study enrolled close to 1,000 patients, and it was actually quite remarkable. I have been part of the study team for this trial, and most of this enrolled over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic's highest days. And regardless of that, we had so much interest and in, in so many patients enrolling on this trial, um, and we just really were so impressed by these patients for for signing up for this trial and, and going through it at a, a particularly tough time in the world, um, such that it actually enrolled a whole year earlier than expected. And um, the, the results of the study actually weren't expected for another year or so, um, but there was actually such a marked difference that it was mandated that the results be released early. There were very exciting results reported that this new treatment with the immunotherapy nivolumab and AVD um, were actually both more effective and better tolerated than the uh, prior standard of care, the brintuximab um, AVD regimen. Um, in particular, there were less side effects, including the numbness and tingling I've mentioned, and infections. 
And the nivolumab ABD treatment is now poised to become the standard of care treatment for advanced stage Hodgkin lymphoma, though it's not yet approved. I think this above-sequence event clearly demonstrates how clinical trials can bring more effective and safer treatments to patients. And it's been so exciting for me you know, to be able to tell my father, who's actually also a physician, a cardiologist, um, how this treatment has evolved and that he, he's really inspired me um, to take care of patients and to try to improve the treatments for them. I also want to discuss updates on two new immunotherapy treatments, different types of immunotherapy treatments that were presented at ASCO for non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, I've mentioned that Hodgkin lymphoma is highly curable. Um, there are about 80 different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and I'm going to talk about three of them briefly as we go through here. The first is CAR T-cell therapy. CAR stands for Chimeric Antigen Receptor T-cell therapy. In this treatment, which is also considered an immunotherapy, blood is collected from a patient and then sent to a lab. There are a number of companies that have um, made these types of, of uh, therapies and in which the T cells are basically engineered in a way that they can better recognize and fight the lymphoma cells when they are infused back into the patient. And the process of creating these cells occurs on the order of a few weeks. Um, which sometimes can be challenging, and I'll explain another type of therapy that can do a similar um, type of strategy with an easier or shorter time to be able to administer. But I want to mention two major studies. The first was a follow-up in the most common type of lymphoma, which is called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. It's also a highly curable lymphoma type with chemotherapy, um, but there need to be strategies to really help make sure we do our best to cure patients who don't respond adequately to that first-line therapy. And there are now two CAR T-cell products that are approved by the FDA in patients who have diffuse large B-cell lymphoma who do not respond adequately to that front-line therapy that's typically called RCHOP. One of them is called AxiCell. And it was reported at ASCO that was a longer follow-up of four years for the study that basically led to the approval of that drug in the second-line setting for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, that it actually increased the overall survival compared to the older standard of care, which was additional chemotherapy followed by an autologous stem cell transplant. So this was very encouraging information for patients who do not respond adequately to the first-line therapy for diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and then go on to receive this novel type of CAR-T therapy. Now, I want to mention another disease called mantle cell lymphoma. This I could also spend a whole discussion talking about all of the advances, all of the new targeted type therapies in this disease, mantle cell lymphoma, that had um, previously been more difficult to treat. Um, but one of the promising strategies for this disease is also CAR-T cell therapy that's called Brexucel, and it has been very effective. One discussion point that comes up, particularly when we talk about these new uh, immunotherapy approaches, particularly CAR-T cell therapy, is whether patients who are treated in what we consider the real world, meaning that they're not on clinical trials, but that they're being treated by their doctor under regular clinical practice, will have similar outcomes to those that are reported on clinical trials. 
Um, there's some concern that, that patients on clinical trials may have better outcomes than those treated in, the, in regular clinical practice. Um, but there was very encouraging data with this product, in, in particular in mantle cell lymphoma. This CAR-T um, showed that there were similar outcomes in, in patients treated in regular clinical practice as to what had been experienced and reported in clinical trials. And then I want to end with talking about a, a third type of immunotherapy that's called bispecific antibodies. And these work in a similar way to the CAR-T in which they basically help the body's T cells better fight the lymphoma by binding to the B cells and the T cells together. So basically harnessing the immune system strength of, of a, inside a person to better fight their lymphoma. And there are actually a couple of these, more than a couple of these are now approved in different types of lymphoma just in recent, literally this year. Um, one of them is called etcaritimab, and um, it, that has been approved by the FDA in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma this year. It was combined with a standard treatment called lenalidomide and rituximab for a disease called follicular lymphoma, um, which also has had many breakthroughs in, in recent years. Um, and this study has shown promising effectiveness and tolerability of this combination in follicular lymphoma with this bispecific antibody therapy. There are studies ongoing that are investigating both this CAR-T cell therapy and bispecific antibodies in untreated patients with lymphoma. And this is another demonstration of the role of clinical trials and how research increases treatment options. The, the future is promising for patients with lymphomas, particularly with these new treatments being approved that are, that are likely to be more effective and better tolerated than the older chemotherapy approaches. And it is my hope and, and I do believe possible that many of these treatments will be incorporated into patients with newly diagnosed or untreated lymphomas to really give them the best effectiveness and the, the most tolerable regimens as we move forward. Thank you so much for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rutherford. That was a superb presentation. Also, the fact that you personalized it a bit and helped people to understand how it's impacted your own family and how it's affected many of your patients and really the hope of clinical trials, how important they are and how important it is um, for people to really consider participating in trials. So thank you so very much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Al Benson III. Dr. Benson is Professor of Medicine, Associate Director for Cooperative Groups, Robert H. Lurie Comprehensive Cancer Center, Northwestern University. And Dr. Benson will be addressing updates in, on the treatment of colorectal cancer presented at ASCO and quality of life issues, managing treatment side effects, symptoms, discomfort, and pain. And um, it's my really great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Benson. Thank you, Dr. Mesner, and it's a pleasure to join everyone today to speak about uh, colorectal cancer and some advancements. Uh, I'll have a particular focus on rectal cancer since one of the lead presentations during the entire ASCO meeting was on rectal cancer. Uh, but first, briefly, um, I should mention that rectal cancer is not only common, but there has been a 2% annual increase in those younger than age 50. And by the year 2030, 
the incident rates for rectal cancer in the 20 to 34 year age group is expected to increase by nearly 125%. It is unclear why this is so, but there have been some investigations that have shown some pathologic and genetic uh, alterations that may differ in younger people compared to those who are older. There's also a lot of work uh, going on to better understand our microbiome or our gut uh, uh, bacteria uh, and other organisms that are importantly linked to our uh, immune system. And this so-called group of early onset uh, cancer patients is a, a very big area of research and uh, and there were certainly presentations during ASCO talking about uh, this group of individuals. I should also mention that rectal cancer treatment through the years has changed dramatically. For many, many years, the approach was uh, a diagnosis of rectal cancer. People immediately went to surgery and then uh, received uh, uh, postoperatively, a regimen consisting of chemotherapy and chemotherapy with radiation. And as a result, uh, many, many people had permanent ostomies. Then what emerged was uh, giving chemo and radiation, chemo radiation uh, combined. Uh, before surgery, the so-called neoadjuvant approach, followed by surgery, and then adjuvant chemotherapy. And what, what this approach showed is there was not only improved local control, preventing local recurrence of uh, rectal cancer, but fewer people required permanent ostomies. There was better tolerance of, of the therapy, and also... Uh, there were uh, uh, people who actually uh, had complete response uh, with the neoadjuvant therapy, uh, improving outcomes. Uh, from that approach, and uh, much more recently, has emerged what we call total neoadjuvant therapy. So this is giving chemotherapy and chemo uh, radiation uh, before surgery. And here has emerged uh, individuals uh, with even higher rates of complete response. And for those individuals, uh, what's emerged is what's called a watch and wait approach. So these individuals with complete response may actually be able to avoid surgery altogether. And this is a very big area of research now. It also requires very expert uh, clinicians to carefully monitor these individuals to make sure that, at least down the line, surgery will not be uh, needed. So at ASCO this year, uh, data were presented for a very important trial from the National Cancer Institute Cooperative Group. 
And this trial was for stage two and three rectal cancer patients who are considered intermediate risk and considered eligible to have a surgery that would avoid a permanent ostomy. So uh, there were two groups of people on the trial. Uh, the first group uh, were people who received a very standard neoadjuvant preoperative chemoradiation uh, regimen. And this group was compared to those who were treated with chemotherapy first with a standard regimen of oxaliplatin 5-FU known as Folfox followed by very selective use of chemoradiation only for those who did not respond to or could not tolerate Folfox. Uh, in, in both groups, patients uh, uh, received surgery, and then they could receive postoperative chemotherapy. The results showed that the chemotherapy approach was non-inferior to standard chemoradiation with local recurrence-free survivor, survivorship greater than 98% in both groups, which is quite stunning. Uh, the complete response rate for both groups was 22 to 24%. Importantly, 90% of those in the chemotherapy group avoided radiation representing a significant benefit for patients since radiation can result in effects on bowel, bladder, and sexual function. Uh, radiation can increase the risk for pelvic fractures and decrease bone marrow reserve, as well as resulting in infertility and premature menopause. So uh, this, these are very important results, and again, will require a very expert team to select those individuals who may be ideal candidates to receive uh, radiation and, uh, I'm sorry, uh, receive chemotherapy and perhaps avoid radiation. I also want to quickly mention another trial of tremendous interest that was reported this year for patients with the tumor genetic alteration known as DNA mismatch repair or microsatellite instability. It's estimated that about 15% of colorectal cancer patients have this alteration, and these are the individuals who uh, can be very sensitive to immunotherapy. And uh, the, the phase two trial that was reported with at least some uh, uh, initial results uh, was a trial that um, uh, gave people the immunotherapy drug uh, dostarlamab uh, as a neoadjuvant treatment. So in other words, before surgical consideration. Uh, and strikingly, thus far, all of the patients and, and these are relatively small numbers, but all had a complete response. So these individuals are being monitored very carefully. There's still a great deal we need to, to learn. Uh, for example, uh, will these uh, individuals with a complete response after radiation remain so? 
or eventually will they require surgery. So it's very much a work in progress, uh, but very stunning results for those uh, individuals who would qualify for an immunotherapeutic approach. And certainly, as we evaluate patients for rectal cancer, we are uh, looking for this subgroup of individuals. There was another abstract of interest which evaluated the role of neoadjuvant chemotherapy for stage two and three rectal cancer. And this was a French uh, study that compared patients who again, received standard chemo radiation followed by surgery and then additional chemotherapy versus those who had a uh, combination chemotherapy approach known as Fulfirinox with um, oxaliplatin, arena tecan, and 5-FU. And uh, after that combined regimen, patients received chemo radiation, surgery, and then additional chemotherapy. Those in the Fulfirinox group had fewer local recurrences, fewer patients developed metastatic disease, and the overall outcomes were improved. So this may be a, a very attractive approach, particularly for those rectal cancer patients who may be at highest risk for recurrence. So uh, we need to continue to carefully monitor these newer approaches, and I need to emphasize that the treatment of rectal cancer really requires a highly expert multidisciplinary team. And this includes the pathologist, the radiologist, as well as the surgeon, radiation oncologist, and medical oncologist. Briefly, I want to uh, mention one more uh, ASCO abstract. It was a Danish trial looking at neoadjuvant chemotherapy for uh, colon cancer patients. And uh, uh, in this particular trial, uh, there were two groups. One received the very standard treatment for colon cancer, which with surgery followed by adjuvant chemotherapy for three or six months. Uh, um, there uh, were 250 uh, patients in this trial, and uh, this group received either capecitabine oxaliplatin or oxaliplatin and 5-FU, which is the a standard regimen, followed by surgery and then adjuvant uh, chemotherapy uh, versus those who were treated first with surgery and adjuvant chemotherapy. Now, for those who received chemotherapy first, uh, there were no, no true overall outcome differences, but uh, those who got neoadjuvant treatment uh, may be in a more favorable group with less toxicity decrease in some surgical complications and downstage tumor. So this approach may be ideal for those uh, at higher risk for complications. Um, I, I want to briefly conclude um, to talk about quality of life. Uh, in these clinical trials I've mentioned, we often measure quality of life um, 
which uh, gives us very important information uh, in terms of treatment tolerability, the overall impact of treatment on a person's everyday life, uh, particularly um, uh, a concept uh, referred to as patient-reported outcomes. So I would emphasize that people really need to work with their multidisciplinary team. Uh, they need to report uh, any uh, symptoms they may have from their tumor, and particularly symptoms uh, during the course of, of treatment, which may be directly related to their treatment, which is critical because there may need to be adjustments in the treatment based on uh, side effects. Um, also, um, many people, uh, particularly those who may have symptoms from their actual cancer, may benefit from uh, having our palliative care team work closely with individuals because the palliative care team are very, very expert in managing symptoms such as pain, such as diarrhea, such as nausea and vomiting, and other uh, symptoms such as fatigue. So uh, uh, it is important for people who have symptoms to ask their team, should our palliative care experts also be involved in their care? Uh, and with that, uh, I'd like to conclude uh, my remarks and thank you for your attention. Thank you so much, Dr. Benson. That was really a superb presentation, um, presenting wonderful updates on the treatment of rectal and colorectal cancer, and also um, your comments about quality of life issues and, of course, the need to work with your healthcare team and, and involve a palliative care team. They are um, a multidisciplinary team of people, and they can actually best manage any treatment side effects you may be having. From point of diagnosis, really, they're wonderful to have involved. Um, they are aware of a wide range of things that can be done to really help manage your treatment side effects. So thank you so much, Dr. Benson, for that superb presentation. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Eileen O'Reilly. Dr. O'Reilly is the Winthrop Rockefeller Endowed Chair in Medical Oncology, Section Head, Hepatopancreatic Biliary and Neuroendocrine Cancers, Co-Director for Medical Initiatives, David M. Rubenstein Center for Pancreatic Cancer, Chair Human Research Protection Program, NIRB, Attending Physician, Member of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, and Professor of Medicine at Wild Cornell Medical College. And Dr. O'Reilly will be addressing updates on the treatment of pancreas cancer presented at ASCO and supportive care. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. O'Reilly. Hello, everyone. Eileen O'Reilly here from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Thank you very much to Cancer Care for the opportunity to speak this afternoon and summarize the updates from 
ASCO 2023 and some of the recent meetings uh, that uh, indicate uh, new data in pancreas cancer. So I'm going to start with uh, operable pancreas cancer, which accounts for about 15% of people diagnosed with this disease, and it's an area of very active development in terms of what's the best sequence of therapy for a patient with a localized operable uh, pancreas cancer. And the current standard paradigm is initial surgery followed by adjuvant treatment or post-operative treatment designed to eradicate any microscopic uh, disease and maximize the chances of it not recurring. And at ASCO this year, we had data from the NORPACT-1 uh, trial, which uh, spoke to exactly this question, is what should be the best sequence of therapy in localized disease? This was a, a randomized uh, phase two study, so not, not an absolutely definitive trial, but uh, certainly provocative in terms of the signal uh, that it identified. And it looked at uh, initial surgery followed by adjuvant fulfirinox or preoperative or neoadjuvant uh, fulfirinox followed by surgery. And I'll, I'll just make the point here that for pancreas cancer, when it's in the borderline setting where it's involving blood vessels and not feasible to do a complete removal, all our guidelines speak to preoperative treatment, but it's been a big debated question in the operable, clearly uh, surgically resectable uh, pancreas cancer setting. And this study actually suggests that for people with localized operable disease that the current standard of proceeding directly to surgery uh, is the one that we should continue to follow and that the investigational approach uh, is giving uh, neoadjuvant or preoperative treatment. And there are a few large studies that are underway and will report out over the next couple of years in this setting, which will further inform uh, this, uh, this timing of sequencing of treatment. So we're going to move now to a person who's undergone treatment. Are there any new developments beyond chemotherapy in that setting? And there are a couple of, I think, emerging, uh, very interesting uh, treatment approaches. And they are both in the immunotherapy space. And just to mention here that these are not standards by any means. They're, they're early signal-seeking uh, approaches that have uh, shown some, some potential in pancreas cancer and are leading to bigger randomized studies to sort of inform whether they could in the future become standards. So the first is uh, targeting KRAS, and KRAS is a gene that's altered in a majority of people with pancreas cancer. It's in the tumor. It's not an inherited gene, so it's a somatic alteration. And there's a potential to generate a vaccine using a, a certain type of a platform where it's a delivery system plus the vaccine against KRAS is administered via a subcutaneous injection in the, in the post-operative setting. And the, the outcomes of this early study was that a immune response could be generated in pancreas cancer against this uh, KRAS, which is encouraging. And not just that, but there was a signal that people who had elevated tumor markers, so CEA, CN99 being blood tests, 
that can suggest that there is emerging activity of the disease. Uh, we've seen some declines and uh, some clearance of circulating microscopic uh, DNA in the blood from shed uh, tumor cells. So again, it doesn't mean that this is uh, a standard or it doesn't mean that it's clearly uh, showing that the disease is not coming back, but there are some surrogate signals that are worthy of, of further development. So that's one approach, and that's uh, what we call a scalable vaccine approach. So that could apply to, to many people. Then the other approach that has shown some promise is using a personalized uh, new antigen vaccine approach. And there are similar uh, trials being conducted in melanoma, colon cancer. Uh, this particular one was developed by colleagues here at MSK and using an mRNA uh, platform delivery system that we've all come to recognize in the COVID era and uh, isolating specific targets for the immune system from an individual person's tumor. So that's where the personalized approach uh, comes in. It's not a shared uh, target approach across different people with this disease, but unique to the uh, particular individual. And here the approach was giving a sequenced vaccine plus a checkpoint inhibitor, so an immune uh, augmenter, along with uh, chemotherapy in the post-op preventative setting. And once more, a uh, very potent immune response was uh, identified and an early signal that those in whom an immune response was identified, uh, that this might translate into an improvement in outcome. So. Both of these approaches are, are planned uh, for randomized studies, which will, you know, definitively answer uh, the question. So I think these are uh, exciting early developments in the uh, early uh, pancreas cancer uh, disease setting space. So now I'm going to move to um, metastatic pancreas cancer, where the disease is spread, typically liver, lung, abdominal cavity, and this accounts for 50 to 60 percent of people with pancreas cancer at the time of their diagnosis. And at ASCO, we heard uh, the updated results of a phase three trial, which has answered an important question in the field. And this study was evaluating nalirifox, which is a first cousin of fulfirinox. It involves oxaliplatin, arenotecan given in a liposomal formulation or a, a nanoparticle formulation, which may lead to higher penetration in the tumor and higher circulating levels of the, the active version of the drug, along with 5-FU and leucovorin, which is a, a vitamin. So the acronym here being nalirifox, and this was compared uh, to gemcitabine and nabpaclitaxel, another uh, current standard uh, for people with untreated metastatic pancreas cancer. And the big question over the, the last decade is, you know, is a four-drug combination better than two, and what's the toxicity profiles of both of these approaches? And, and the bottom line here is there was a clear advantage to the combination of nalirifox versus gemcitabine and napaclitaxel in terms of shrinking the cancer, controlling the disease, and extending life. And for the most part, uh, the toxicity or the, the safety profiles of each of these regimens, while they were different in some regards, but were largely fairly similar. And that 
sort of suggests that for uh, a fit individual with untreated metastatic pancreas cancer, that gemcitabine and that paclitaxel will uh, step into the background, not to say that there isn't uh, a value for this treatment. There certainly is, and there may be other reasons why that treatment is an important choice. Uh, but full Fironox and perhaps now Lirifox, it's under review with the, with the FDA and uh, pending uh, sort of guidelines update, but this may become a standard as we move forward in this disease. So another uh, approach that was looked at as ASCO when we saw results from, from a trial is what's the value of sequencing different treatments with a planned treatment change at a certain time point. So rather than waiting till uh, the disease starts to grow to switch therapy uh, in, in contrast to uh, every two months to, to do a planned change in treatment. And a study called the footpath study uh, was presented at ASCO to see was this a, a better way of going? And in some regards, maybe the toxicity or the side effect profile is, is a little bit less, but for the most part, it really didn't uh, speak to it being a better strategy in this disease. Although I do want to emphasize that, you know, optimizing symptom management and supportive care is critical in, in uh, treatment of pancreas cancer. And along with all the new therapies that we're looking at from day one, making sure that nutrition is in the best place it can be, that use of pancreatic enzymes are optimized, that treatment of clots, treatment of pain uh, with all the available tools are uh, integrated as part of a comprehensive treatment approach. Uh, we know that that uh, strategy leads to the best outcome in this disease and, and you know, Certainly relative to, to many cancers, this is always an important topic, but it's, it's really important in, in pancreas cancer because of the, the symptom burden that this disease can often uh, present with. So moving to other areas in the metastatic uh, disease space where we're seeing some exciting developments. And just going back uh, to uh, genetics of this disease, and in the uh, tumor, we said that KRAS is a very uh, frequent gene that's uh, mutated or uh, changed. And we've seen uh, data from uh, targeting a small subset of this gene in pancreas cancer meet a threshold of uh, guideline approval. And so KRAS comes in various flavors, and one of them is G12C, which is particularly common in lung cancer and colon cancer. It's in about 1% of people with pancreas cancer, and there are now targeted drugs on their own that have shown the ability to uh, shrink the cancer and control the disease. And that is a very exciting development because KRAS has been a major target of uh, treatment approaches for decades and, and largely unsuccessful. Uh, but this has provided a proof of principle that you can actually target this gene directly. And so now we're in the era of targeting the more common versions of KRAS, so something called G12D, G12V, and g 12 R are the three uh, most common uh, versions of KRAS that we see in pancreas cancer. 
and there are drugs in the clinic now that are looking at dosing, looking at safety, looking at what the best uh, schedule is to see if they meet uh, both an efficacy and a safety bar uh, that will allow them to, to move forward. And we have early hints uh, that these look promising, and there are many of these agents entering clinic. It's going to take a while for this to be scaled and to be accessible uh, to most people, but we hope uh, that this will happen uh, in the next 6 to 12 months as these drugs uh, are escalated in terms of development. And if a proof of principle is established in metastatic pancreas cancer, then that sets the, the scene for integrating those drugs into earlier stage disease. So in the setting of uh, localized, non-metastatic, but non-operable pancreas cancer, which is about a third of the disease, and even uh, in due course, in following a surgical resection, we've talked about vaccines against KRAS, but these are oral and intravenous uh, small molecule or direct uh, targets, targeting agents of KRAS, so complementary but different uh, treatment approaches designed to do the same thing, which is shut off a key gene that's involved in signaling growth and metastasis in pancreas cancer. So stay tuned on that space. I think that's uh, a key one to, to follow. And then lastly, I'll, I'll just uh, mention that in the setting of uh, pancreas cancer where we don't see a KRAS mutation, and that's about 5 to 6% of this disease, and, and this may be particularly so in people under the age of 55 diagnosed with this disease, uh, that we'll see other uh, findings in the genetic sequencing of the tumor uh, that lead to other targeted approaches. So increasingly, it's a very um, key aspect of care that we do uh, testing to look for any genetic predisposition, so that's what we call germline alterations uh, for implications of platinum drugs and, and PARP inhibitors as part of treatment, but we also look uh, for the tumor-based sequencing uh, for KRAS, for a signal for immune therapy that applies to a small subset of people outside of a, a clinical trial, and now increasingly for KRAS-directed approaches and for BRCA uh, alterations in the tumor where we're seeing further development of PARP inhibitors uh, in, in pancreas cancer and other rare fusions or alterations in the tumor that we can target uh, with novel therapeutics. So I'll sum up to say that uh, ASCO 2023 was important. We saw uh, the results of Nalirifox, and, and this is a benchmark in that it's a first positive trial in a decade in, in pancreas cancer in the metastatic space beyond uh, a maintenance uh, setting that leads to a potential new reference standard and defines a treatment approach. And then early signals with various uh, immune approaches and vaccines in the early setting in pancreas cancer. And that treatment sequencing in the setting of operable pancreas cancer uh, remains a, a question with the default uh, currently being uh, surgery first uh, followed by uh, adjuvant treatment. So thank you very much. I'll turn it back to Dr. Messner uh, for the rest of the program. 
Oh, thank you so much, Dr. O'Reilly. That was really a superb presentation and really um, was a lot of activity, it sounds like, at ASCO around updates on the treatment of pancreas cancer. Um, you did a wonderful job presenting on really a, all the new um, developments that have occurred. And I think that gives a great deal of hope to people with pancreas cancer and also the need to take advantage of supportive care as well to manage the uh, symptom burden that people may have. It's a great group to actually help with that as well. And to stay tuned, looks like there's a lot more that we'll be hearing from um, about pancreas cancer. So thank you so much. Thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Timothy Pardee. And Dr. Pardee is professor of medicine, director leukemia program, co-leader cancer genetics and metabolism program, co-leader hematology disease-oriented team, Atrium Health, Wake Forest Baptist. And Dr. Pardee will be addressing updates on the treatment of leukemia presented at ASCO and communicating with your healthcare team key questions to ask. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Pardee. Thank you so much, Dr. Messner. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you folks about uh, what was presented at the most recent ASCO meeting. Um, the four abstracts I'm going to highlight were sort of considered among the most impactful uh, at this meeting, and they all happen to involve the same disease, which is a disease called acute lymphoblastic leukemia, uh, and many of them also involve immunotherapy. And thankfully, my previous speaker, the previous speakers have already done a really good job in providing some background there, so I'll, I'll be very brief. Uh, and then lastly, as was mentioned, I'm going to just talk briefly about talking to your healthcare team uh, and, and some things to keep in mind when you're, when you're discussing uh, things with your medical oncology team. So... Um, with that, I am going to talk very briefly about immunotherapy. So as I'm sure many folks on this call are aware, immunotherapy really has revolutionized the care of many diseases in oncology, and it's, it's been a source of a lot of breakthrough treatments and a source of a lot of hope for patients who are suffering from cancer. Um, the leukemias sort of uh, have had a mixed um, success rate with certain immunotherapies being very helpful and other immunotherapies like the checkpoint inhibitors really being sort of less helpful. Um, so today, uh, three of the four abstracts I'm going to talk about involve immunotherapy of some kind. Um, two of the three involve a immunotherapy called CAR-T therapy, which was already brought up. Um, and again, just to remind the folks on the call that CAR-T therapy is when a patient's own immune cells, in this case T cells, are taken out of the patient and essentially reprogrammed to attack a specific protein marker on the leukemia cells. Um, in this case, it's a protein called CD19 for B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia or a protein called CD5 for T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Uh, and then there's also an uh, abstract that discusses antibody-conjugated uh, 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 drugs, or ADCs, antibody drug conjugates. That was also already br brought up. Uh, in this case, it's, it's a drug called inatuzumab, which um, binds to a protein called CD22 and delivers uh, toxic chemotherapy specifically to tumor cells that express that protein. And then finally, a bispecific antibody, again, which was also already brought up, which grabs onto um, B-cell leukemia cells using a, a, that CD19 protein, but then also grabs T-cells using a, a protein called CD3 and really handcuffs these uh, leukemia cells to T-cells, uh, basically getting the T-cells to, to kill the leukemia cell. So that's just a little bit of brief 
background to put these abstracts into context. Uh, and the first abstract we're going to talk about uh, involves a CAR-T product that is used in the treatment of relapsed or refractory uh, B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia in adults. So the CAR-T revolution has been incredibly uh, important for B-cell ALL uh, and has uh, cured patients when really no hope of cure was uh, thought of uh, prior to their invention. Um, but most of these CAR-Ts are all built on the same uh, sort of blueprint that uh, makes the CAR-T grab very tightly to that CD19 handle on the leukemia cell, uh, which is great in that it, it makes sure that the the T-cell kills that cell, but it can also lead to things like overactivation of your immune system, something called cytokine release syndrome, and that can be kind of dangerous and toxic, uh, and it can also lead to neurological toxicity, something called ICANS. And so the first abstract uh, I'm going to talk about is a new CAR-T. Uh, it's called OB-cell, and the different thing about this CAR-T product is that it grabs onto CD19 a little less tightly, uh, and it's quick to let it go, something called a fast-release or a fast off-rate CD19 car. Uh, and really what the uh, investigators were hoping was that they would get the same good activity of a CAR T cell, but with far less toxicity and a little bit more uh, um, persistence of those CAR Ts in the patient. Uh, and so that was the background. And they uh, were able to show that patients could, um, almost everybody who uh, enrolled on the trial could get a, a CAR-T product made. So they were very efficient at making these CAR-T cells from patients. Uh, and as was mentioned previously, it can be really important to make sure that the time it takes to make that CAR-T cell isn't too long. And these investigators showed that it on average only took three weeks, which is actually really pretty impressive um, for a CAR-T product. And then most importantly, when they um, tried these new CAR-Ts on a cohort of patients who were very heavily pretreated, they, they were able to show really remarkable response rates with the vast majority of patients achieving some kind of a remission, um, which was fantastic. And then when they looked at toxicity, the rates of, that, of, that immuno, uh, of the immune system being overactivated, that cytokine release syndrome, were dramatically lower than what's been seen in previous studies. Uh, and, and then finally, they looked at how long these CAR-Ts lasted in the patients, and they, they were able to show really quite impressive persistence of these CAR-Ts, and one patient um, still had detectable CAR-Ts more than a year and a half from, from after they received it. So all, all in all, a really encouraging abstract, still very early, and, and new trials have to be done with this, um, but really showing that as good as CAR-Ts are, we can, there's still room for improvement, and there are groups working hard to improve it, uh, and this is an exciting new development. This OB-cell CAR-T um, is an exciting new development. So the next abstract I wanted to highlight was, again, has to do with a CAR-T, but this time against um, a form of acute lymphoblastic leukemia that's been particularly hard to treat and to target, and that's T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And so CAR-Ts are typically used in B-cell diseases because it's a different type of cell, and the, um, the T-cells that are used in the CAR-Ts can attack the B-cells. But with T-cell ALL, that protein handle that, that we use to identify the leukemia cell is also on the CAR T cell itself. And so when you engineer a CAR T cell to kill a T cell leukemia cell, that CAR T cell can become confused and they can start to kill each other in a process that's called fratricide. 
And so that's been a really difficult uh, hurdle to overcome, but there is a group at uh, Baylor College of Medicine that's been working on this for a while, and um, they were able to generate a CAR-T that targeted a protein called CD5, which is expressed on most T-cell ALL cells, uh, and they initially made these CAR-T cells the standard way and infused them into patients in a small clinical trial, and unfortunately, they didn't have a, uh, a huge response um, but what I really love about this abstract is that the investigators didn't give up. They went back to the laboratory and they figured out why they didn't have a great response. And it turned out part of the story was that these T cells that they were making, these CAR T cells, were attacking each other and getting exhausted. And so they looked at whether or not they could add additional medicines to suppress the ability of those CAR T cells to become activated until they went into the patient. And so when they made a new batch of CAR T cells for different patients and they added those medicines in and then infused them into heavily pretreated T cell ALL patients, they basically quadrupled the response rates um, with uh, several of the patients on that trial getting really deep remissions, which was um, a, a just a really great result and not something we've seen a lot in T cell ALL. And then they further went on to show that the CAR-Ts made that new way were much more persistent in those patients than the CAR-Ts that had been made previously with the standard way. So again, another really exciting development and a, and a, a way to move forward in a disease that really has suffered uh, uh, without a whole lot of options. So a lot of excitement about that. Um, next, I wanted to just highlight a an abstract um, from the Alliance, which is a group of academic institutions, and they got together and did a, a clinical trial for older patients who are suffering from acute lymphoblastic leukemia, particularly B-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia. And what they had um, noticed was that older patients with B-cell uh, acute lymphoblastic leukemias treated with chemotherapy tended to not do as well as we would like. Um, and in this disease, we have uh, two drugs that had been approved for relapsed patients. Uh, one of those drugs we talked about before is called inatuzumab. It's an antibody drug conjugate. It binds to a protein called CD22, uh, and it delivers a toxic chemotherapy very selectively to uh, B-cell ALL cells, and then the other is a drug called blinatumumab, and that's a bispecific antibody that binds to T-cells, and it binds to B-ALL cells, um, basically bringing the T-cell to the leukemia cell so it can be killed. And what was found is that both of those drugs in the relapse setting worked better than chemotherapy, so these authors wondered, could they be used together to treat older ALL patients and remove the need for any chemotherapy? And so they designed a treatment regimen with those two drugs, and they enrolled patients who were 60 years of age or older who had a newly diagnosed B-cell ALL, and their response rates were just incredible. So almost every patient who was put on that trial achieved a remission, which is just fantastic. And those remissions were durable. And even though the study has only a very short follow-up, it already looks far superior to what um, the outcomes for older patients treated with chemotherapy were. Um, and so this regimen, I think, is, is really um, replacing the chemotherapy regimen uh, that we used to use for older uh, ALL patients and, and represents a, a really significant step forward. And then the final abstract I wanted to mention really doesn't involve any novel treatments at all, 
really what it, it looked at was patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia and whether where they were treated mattered. And they specifically looked at younger ALL patients, so this adolescent young adults, so between the ages of 15 and 39. And the reason they focused on that group is because leukemia, acute lymphoblastic leukemia in that age group is actually really curable. And so somewhere between, you know, a, a, the vast majority of, of patients in that age group who get treated appropriately with chemotherapy will achieve a durable lasting remission. But the treatment regimens are really complicated and, pay, and providers need to know what they're doing. And it's a fairly rare disease overall. And so the investigators wanted to know was there a difference in how patients did, whether they were treated in smaller settings or if they were treated at larger centers with um, experience, what they, what they termed specialty care centers? And they looked in three states. They looked in New York, in Texas, and California. And what they found was um, essentially across the board, patients who were treated at specialty care centers did significantly better in terms of overall survival than patients who were treated at smaller regional centers. Um, really highlighting the need to make sure that access uh, is available to really everybody to, to a major specialty care center so that um, patients who suffer from acute lymphoblastic leukemia can be seen by providers who, um, who have experience treating that disease. Um, and I thought that was a really important finding and a nice way to kind of transition to the last um, topic I'm going to uh, talk on just for a minute or two, and that's about communicating with your healthcare team and sort of key questions to ask. And I think if you have a rare disease like acute lymphoblastic leukemia, um, it's certainly very fair to talk to your, uh, your treating team uh, as to their experience and comfort level treating that disease. Um, and I think that's a very reasonable question to ask them. Um, but uh, I think the single most important thing that I would have this audience remember, and, and if you remember nothing else, uh, when you go to talk to your medical team about your diagnosis and treatment options, please, if at all possible, bring someone with you. You're not going to remember everything. You shouldn't have to. You have a bunch of things that you're trying to juggle all at once. It really is helpful to have a second set of ears uh, or more if you can bring more than one extra person. Um, I think the next most important thing is if you don't understand something, please let your team know. Um, and I know sometimes patients can be reluctant to say that they, they didn't understand something, um, but, but it really is a, a huge part of our jobs as medical oncologists and, and cancer providers to make sure that our patients understand not only the diagnosis, but also the treatment options and the implications of those treatment options uh, in terms of toxicities you might expect, time that you'll need to be at the infusion center uh, versus, uh, you know, medicines that can be taken at home. Uh, I like to make to outline for my patients sort of a best case scenario, a worst case scenario, and a most likely scenario for all of the different options. And then your team should absolutely give you a recommendation for what treatment they feel is best and why they feel it's best, but it really should come across as a recommendation. Um, so I really feel strongly in the partnering with your patients model of practicing medicine. I don't tell my patients what treatments to do. I just give recommendations and why I think that's um, the right recommendation for them. And then finally, with cancer care, second opinions should never be discouraged. So um, the only time that that's ever an, an issue is if I have a leukemia patient who's rapidly progressing and I need to get them to treatment very quickly. But then as soon as things are stable, 
absolutely um, can, can make arrangements to have a second opinion done. You're not going to hurt anybody's feelings, and it's incredibly important to be comfortable with the treatment plan that you've decided on. Um, so I would really uh, uh, encourage everybody to think about second opinions um, when, when you're dealing with a new cancer diagnosis. Um, and other than that, I think, you know, your, your team really ought to be very receptive to any questions you have. It's a big part of their job is to make sure that you understand what's going on and make the best, most informed decision possible. And with that, I will turn it back to Dr. Mester, and uh, thank you again for your attention. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Pardee. That was just a wonderful presentation, um, just wonderful information about just the, the new advances that were discovered at ASCO in terms of the use of CAR T trials and how they were adapted for them. And just, it's just so, it's really like a rocket science to all of us to hear all of the things that are being done and tried and, um, and the importance of communicating with healthcare teams. So thank you. And that second set of years or third set of years is really important. Thank you. And our next and final speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. And uh, Dr. Daniels is Professor of Medicine, UC San Diego, Morris Cancer Center. And Dr. Daniels will be addressing updates on the treatment of melanoma presented at ASCO. And Dr. Daniels will provide an, a wrap-up of part two of Highlights of ASCO. Um, so um, stay tuned. And I'm gonna, it's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Carolyn. And uh, thank you to Cancer Care for putting on these, these great programs and all the speakers that uh, went before me and um, made my job a lot easier. So. Um, as Carolyn said, I, I'm going to comment on melanoma. I actually might comment also on some non-melanoma issues that came up at ASCO um, as it relates to, to kind of skin cancer in general, and then um, do a wrap-up. So melanoma, um, not the most common skin cancer, but unfortunately is one of the deadlier ones. And uh, I just think all, all the speakers would agree that um, the best the best stage to get of a cancer is no stage. Um, and so prevention is, is really a mainstay. And again, I think all the speakers would think, would agree that um, you know, practicing a healthy diet, um, staying active, avoiding those things that we know um, can lead to higher incidence of, of cancers, being aware of, um, of, of your general health all can um, lead to better outcomes for cancer and hopefully even um, preventing cancer. And melanoma is one of those that um, you don't need to go in for a colonoscopy. Um, you just need to um, be aware of your skin. And uh, as I always um, try to, to get out there is, you know, if you see spot, um, see spot change, you got to see someone. Um, that someone could be a dermatologist or maybe even a a primary care physician, or um, maybe it's your iPhone and you take a picture of it uh, to keep an eye on it to monitor for change. And so um, that's, a, that's very important. And then understanding that there is a relationship um, between melanoma and our environment, and we want to obviously prevent um, sunburns, and a relationship between uh, melanoma and who we are. Um, we know that uh, patients who get uh, melanoma um, the first-degree relatives, so if that's a, a child, then the parent or the children of the child, those are first-degree relatives, or an aunt, uncle, um, they all have an increased risk and uh, need to have skin awareness. So um, a concept that uh, you heard throughout this um, 
program has been the idea of, of tailing, tailoring our therapies, shifting around our therapies, seeing if what we did in the past uh, makes sense um, or can we get some advantages by um, shuffling the deck a little bit. And one concept uh, that you heard um, repeatedly is, is something called neoadjuvant therapy. And neoadjuvant just means before that um, curative intent operation, or even in some, some cases radiation, um, can we give a systemic treatment that improves that outcome? And in melanoma, um, uh, there was a cooperative group study by the Southwest Oncology Group, and uh, Dr. Sapna Patel has presented this a few times as, a, as one of the lead authors on the, on the trial looking at patients with melanoma who present um, either after having an initial melanoma or um, they present uh, initially with their uh, first case with a palpable lymph node, something that um, you know, comes to the attention, um, not something discovered um, very early, like with a thin melanoma, but um, substantial. And our standard for many, many years has been um, what's called completion lymph node dissection, followed by consideration for radiation, followed by consideration for adjuvant treatment. And the paradigms um, changed over the years. Um, most of us have really gotten away from using radiation. Those are old studies now that um, suggest limited value for the patient. But the use of surgery and then adjuvant um, systemic therapy is a mainstay. We've had interferon, we've had um, other immune therapies, and recently uh, pembrolizumab, otherwise known as Keytruda, is often used. And so in the study, patients who normally would have gotten surgery and then uh, pembrolizumab got the same treatment, but with a few doses of pembrolizumab prior to the initial surgery. This is really a challenge, I will say, because patients, when they see cancer, they want cancer gone, um, and that's totally understandable. Um, but patients were asked to delay surgery for approximately nine weeks while they got this immune therapy. And this has led to really consideration of changing how we treat this type of disease because that study showed an improvement in what we call event-free survival, so cancer coming back or or um, other complications from the disease. But uh, similar toxicities compared to just doing surgery and, and radiation. So we seem to be using the same treatments but getting um, some better outcomes with less toxicities. The, the story is not over, though. Um, and at ASCO, uh, two other studies, while they're a little bit older and the data's out there, the data's maturing and we're having comparisons between the, between the trials. And both of them also used immune therapy before surgery, the OPASA-NEO study and the Prado study um, specifically. And these um, were studies looking at a combination of immune therapy and then deciding whether patients go on to further um, surgery. Um, like in the Prado study, or all patients went on to further surgery, as in the Opasin study. And while these studies were run in kind of similar fashions, they are separate studies. And so when we compare the outcomes, um, what we're really um, looking at is, is this a reasonable idea to pursue? Um, so cross-trial comparisons are always hypothesis-generating. But uh, 
pretty startling um, thing came out of that, which is patients who get a substantial immune response um, with limited exposure of, of drugs prior to surgery, they may not need uh, additional surgery. Um, and I, I want to emphasize the may, but this is kind of just a theme you've probably heard throughout um, the discussions, which is, you know, can we, um, what we call de-escalate um, care, can we pick out um, patients who may benefit from less therapy because everything that we um, expose a patient to has the potential for toxicities? And so the comparisons between the outcomes of these studies were, were pretty uh, fascinating. That's not to say that adjuvant therapy is, is not still used, um, uh, for sure. And um, there was an a, uh, update on what's been mostly press releases out there um, on the Keynote 942 study. And this, again, like the other um, speakers have alluded to, is a type of vaccine that's based on mRNA technology. And in this study, patients' tumors uh, were uh, evaluated at a molecular level to figure out all the different mutations that they have. And then it was determined which were the most likely ones that the body could mount a response to. And then a, a very personalized uh, vaccine was made for that person. And as such, this is a lot of work um, to go through. This, um, but technology has advanced so quickly that we can now go from wanting to get a personalized vaccine to having one in hand in about two to three weeks. So patients were enrolled in the study where they got immune therapy um, after having surgery for high-risk disease, or they got immune therapy plus the specific um, vaccine that was tailored to their tumor. And in this small um, phase two study, randomize, they saw an improvement in relapse-free survival, which uh, we hope is a surrogate uh, for uh, or a, a marker that we're going to have many more people or more people um, not having cancer come back ultimately and living longer. This, of course, needs um, a larger phase three study, and that's um, getting going right now as we speak. Jumping to systemic therapies, historically, um, just like all cancers, you know, over the last 100 years, um, chemotherapy started off in melanoma. Um, unfortunately, chemotherapy um, was proven to have very little value in melanomas early on, and so um, melanoma was one of those tumors that moved quickly towards um, targeted therapies and immune therapies. And we have several that are approved um, with, with um, proven benefit. Um, uh, however, they're not perfect. And they're not perfect because they have toxicities and they don't work in everybody. So recently, a new combination immune therapy was approved, a new target um, called LAG3, combined with uh, another common checkpoint inhibitor. And that study led to the approval of a new combination last year um, for melanoma patients with advanced disease. But we're left with the idea that um, we don't know what the best therapy is for somebody. And that best therapy is really um, a challenging question to answer. Um, at first blush, we always think best therapy is the one that um, makes the cancer go away the quickest and longest. However, best also includes the toxicities that happen and all the other things that come with the therapy. 
And so a standard uh, treatment is a combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab in melanoma. And we consider that pretty much um, our go-to treatment uh, for most patients who can tolerate um, um, that uh, standard treatment. And that's because we have seven and a half years of data saying that um, patients who get this therapy, a percentage of them end up um, cancer controlled without needing any other treatment. So where does this new combination fit in? Well, we know, um, or we think we knew, that it's uh, less toxic than that um, combination. And we think it's good, but we don't really know if it's better. And uh, Georgina Long uh, presented a cross-trial comparison looking at these. And my same caveat is cross-trial comparisons are good for discussions, but um, we always have to uh, be mindful that uh, they're looking at different populations of patients. And it um, affirmed uh, some of the things we know, which is the toxicity from the um, new combination is lower in general um, than the older standard that we were using, ipilimumab and nivolumab. However, it's not clear that um, that new combination is actually better. And, uh, and I'll just say that for most patients right now, until we get um, really some clearer data and longer-term follow-up, um, the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab uh, remains the standard for patients who otherwise um, um, are good candidates for that aggressive immune therapy. Um, lots was uh, talked about on biomarkers, um, prognostic things, just like all the other uh, tumor types. I'm not going to spend any time on that. because I, I actually want to get to our, our wrap-up. Um, and the wrap-up is, the theme that you've heard is, um, really things are changing. I can't think of a, another field in medicine that over the last 10 years has been driven so much um, by clinical trials. And that's despite the fact, unfortunately, that it's still the minority of patients who have the opportunity um, to participate in clinical trials. So I would say, um, you know, if you're in a situation and you have that discussion with your practitioner, um, ask them if clinical trials are appropriate. Um, there are still some misconceptions about clinical trials um, that um, I hear from patients occasionally. Oh, well, you know, I don't want to um, have a placebo, or I'm not sure I'm comfortable being a guinea pig. Um, these are absolutely um, right concerns, but um, let's talk about them. Um, and uh, we're not using people as guinea pigs. Um, we are using people in an informed decision-making way to try to improve the outcomes for not just that patient, but for all the patients um, coming forward. And I, I find that most of the time having that discussion, patients start to realize that clinical trials may be uh, more of an option for them. Because as we, as we heard Dr. Chris state, um, when I started doing oncology, um, the standard for lung cancer was uh, one chemo versus another chemo versus another chemo, and they all worked the same. And we would have been stuck there without clinical trials, without the molecular testing that led to the discovery that uh, EGFR mutations drive a percentage of cancers. And now, instead of um, cytotoxic chemos, we can give these targeted therapies like osimertinib. Uh, when we don't have targeted therapies, a lot of times those are now responsive to immune therapies. And so having this molecular understanding has allowed personalization in lung cancer. 
and um, improving the outcomes. That same thing in lymphoma, um, understanding that um, CD30 uh, is a target on Hodgkin's lymphoma and substituting out some of the older chemotherapies and eventually even moving on to now uh, chemoimmune therapy with decreased side effects and um, improved uh, outcomes in, in Hodgkin's disease was all driven by clinical trials and collaborations and participations. Um, I can go on with, you know, as Dr. Benson, Benson mentioned, with uh, rectal cancer. Um, rectal cancer com coming up more common. Need to deal with this in younger patients. Um, younger patients certainly don't want to go through life um, with an ostomy. How do we uh, figure out how to, how to cure patients without ostomies? Well, it's clinical trials. And he presented data where chemotherapy may be able to avoid radiation in some patients and um, have um, surgery have better outcomes, being more selective about who we're applying these therapies to. Again, uh, tailoring, doing therapies in different sequences like neoadjuvant approaches, all on the same theme of building on that science and collaboration. Even... Um, a, ther a uh, tumor type such as pancreatic uh, cancer, as Dr. O'Reilly uh, mentioned, uh, been very difficult uh, to make progress there, but molecular testing has shown KRAS mutations. Now we're uh, at the point, using that same mRNA technology, we can make vaccines against KRAS. We can start to uh, bring some of these other tools of immune therapy into the management of patients. Randomized trials are showing that it's not um, just one chemo is as good as another chemo, but um, it actually matters um, when you apply these and which chemos you give. And lastly, um, in uh, leukemia, um, Dr. Pardee uh, talked about here again, this uh, leukemias were kind of the foundation that cytotoxic chemotherapies were based off of. And now here we are using CAR T-cells, bispecific antibodies targeting molecules on the surface and doing large clinical trials through collaborations with cooperative groups such as the Alliance trials that he mentioned, and, you know, better tailoring these newer therapies and leading to um, better outcomes with less toxicity, which is what I defined as a best therapy. So hopefully audience is left with um, the, the idea that, you know, we're making progress and how we're making progress and understanding while we're not quite there yet, I think we have a path. And so with that, I'll turn it back over to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was just a superb presentation, both on melanoma and on wrapping up the program, and really giving our audience such a sense of hope and inspiration about where we've come, where we're going, how we're advancing the treatment of cancer, um, so that there's less toxicity, that people can tolerate their treatments better and get better outcomes. So thank you so much, uh, Dr. Daniels, for for staying the course with us and really wrapping this up so beautifully as well. And um, I'm just going to conclude the program. I just want to say um, that we don't want anyone to leave today's program feeling that you're alone. We want you to now know that you're part of a community of support. There are many resources out there for you. And uh, those resources, of course, include cancer care. Um, we offer free support services to anybody who contacts us at our Hope Line, 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org. 
We offer support groups. We offer um, online support groups. We offer these workshops, publications, community programs, lots of things available that you can take advantage of. We also offer practical and financial assistance as well and resource management. So, um, and Cancer Care is not the only resource you're going to get. So today you will be getting, not today, but probably in a couple of days, you'll be getting a, um, a survey monkey evaluation of the program. But in addition to that, we'll include um, resources in addition to Cancer Care, include Cancer Care information, but other resources that we think might be of help to all of you. And um, I just want to thank you all for your participation today. And please do know that, um, that although Cancer Care is one of the organizations, there are many others. We'll list some of them for you to contact. And of course, there is your healthcare team, who are, of course, the most important people. And find out, of course, with your healthcare team, um, who do you call evenings, weekends, and holidays. Those seem to be the biggest times when it's hard to reach somebody. So be sure to get a phone number to call that you can call um, on those times. It just seems that after business hours, people seem to have uh, issues that come up or they wait, you know, it just comes up in the evening or weekends or holidays. Again, I want to thank you all for your participation today and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.